Okay. Okay, I want to preach two sermons this morning. The first one is going to be reading the Bible. Because I, I talk too much on Sunday, and the Bible should not get the short end of the stick. So open your Bible to Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. And I'm going to read Colossians 2, 9 to 15, and then 3, 1 to 11. And, and I, w- I want you to listen to this like it's its own sermon. Because the Bible is what we call in the church perspicuitous. Which is a little bit ironic because the word means understandable. <laughs> um, but we believe that. We believe that the Bible is understandable. That yeah, we work it out, we tease it out and all that. But just listening to it attentively is sufficient to change us. So... I want to read Colossians 2. And so this is page 1833 in your Bible, which is actually the year William Wilberforce died. So just a little tidbit for you. You've already got your money's worth. Okay, Colossians 2, starting verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ— who is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. We just stop there, can we? There it is. Where did my clicker go? Okay, last week, we talked about what spiritual idolatry is. And, and I spent a considerable amount of time arguing that idolatry is spiritual adultery. Um, that psychologically... It is making something besides Christ your life. That's what idolatry is. See if I do. That is last week's slideshow. Um, See if we can get the other one. Um, Psychologically, it's making— So remember Colossians 3, 4, it said this. When Christ, who is your, what? Your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. So if you're a Christian, 
what is your life? It's Christ is your, he is your life. Not metaphorically. Completely, right? Or religiously, you could say it this way. Idolatry is making something else your righteousness. Something else is your worthwhileness, to say it non-religiously. Whenever something else legitimizes your existence, that's an idol, right? Um, or originally, you could say it this way. The, the, here's a, a picture of it. What did Adam and Eve do right after they sinned? They, they pieced together some leaves, and then they hid, right? They, they created a covering for themselves, and they, they got a bunch of fig leaves and pieced it all together and tried to make something that would legitimize their guilt. They saw they were naked. They thought, oh, we shouldn't be naked, so let's cover it with something. And that's not what that verse means in the history of redemption, but that's a picture of what sin, how sin deals with itself. It creates, a it creates a covering. It creates some legitimization that you can put in front of the world that will manage your image and say, this is why I'm worthwhile. Other than Christ who is your life, right? But we also talked last week about the fact that idolatry just doesn't stand out there by itself. But there's a reason why we're such a sucker for idolatry. There's something wrong with us. There's this thing that Scripture calls the flesh. It's something in us that makes us prone to idolatry. It's something that makes us, I said last week, a spiritual loser magnet. It makes us a sucker for sin. It makes us a sucker for idolatry. It makes us a sucker for making something else besides Christ our life. And um, we talked about how the flesh—it's not the body. The flesh is—Keller says it this way. Um, it is self with a capital S. It is a vision of the world in which we— provide for ourselves and define ourselves, rather than a vision of the world in which Christ is our life. Christ is over everything. Christ is our provider. He's our treasure. He's our director. He's our leader. He's our provider. So the question that I want to talk about this morning is, so how do we overcome idolatry in the flesh, right? It's one thing to have a really good definition, but it's a whole other thing to actually put the flesh to death, to actually break down our idols, to actually do something different, right? So Colossians 3, 5 puts it this way. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, whether sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So if you just take out the intervening um, clauses there, what does that mean? we have to put to death. If we have to put to death something that always produces idolatry, one of the things that has to die is idolatry. But in order to do that, we've got to put together, we've got to put to death what? Whatever belongs to our earthly nature. Now, it's really easy to get confused on that. Well, wait a second, Nick. Earthly nature, does that mean then our— No. Remember what verses th 1 through 4 are all about, remember? It says, because of all this Christ has done for you, what should you set your heart on? things above rather than earth. It's a metaphor, okay? It's a, it's, a, it's a picture. It's, there are the things of Christ that metaphorically is going to be above. There are the things that are not focused on Jesus. Where it's going to be the things of the earth in this word picture, right? So he's saying, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So then he gets to verse 5 and he says, therefore put to death whatever is part of your earthly nature. He's not saying your body. He's saying whatever is not setting your heart and setting your mind on the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, who has accomplished all things and is the Savior. That's what it means. And whatever is that has to go. It's got to die. And you can't—one of the things I, I tried to make clear, clear last week, and I don't know if I did, is you cannot separate out breaking down idols— and killing the flesh. You can't—they get life from each other. It's like a bad relationship, and you just can't get the people to break up, and it just—the dysfunction just feeds off each other, and you somehow you got to get them unhitched from each other and deal with them separately. But it's like that. The flesh is what gives life to our idols. Our idols is what gives life to our flesh. You have to fight them both at the same time, which is fun. Now, a couple verses later, this passage gets a little more specific. If you look at verses 9 and 10, it says, Do not lie to each other, right? It's just a biblical command not to lie. Why, though? Why? He says, 
since... So something's already happened. The reason has already happened. Since you've taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and image of its creator. Now there's, there's a couple of important things to note about that verse. One is, is that there's both active and passive in that verse. For example, when it says you've taken off the old self and you've put on the new self, it means that. It means you di- you've done it. Now, that doesn't mean that you are the efficient cause, meaning you did all the work. It just means you're the condition. You, you, you believed. That's the condition. God does the work then to do that, but, but you're involved. But then secondly, it says that which is, the new self is what? Is being renewed. That's passive, right? And one of the things we talked about last week was that the first step of breaking idols and killing the flesh is believing in Jesus. John Owen called it not just our duty is to kill the flesh. Our immediate duty is to believe in Jesus. Because it's through the gospel that we receive the Holy Spirit, and it is the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the efficient strength that gets us to where we can break down an idol and we can put the flesh to death. And so you can't get anywhere, right? without God doing the work. And even after you believe, then do you do all the work after you believe? No, you don't, right? It says that you did the transfer, but now what's happening? That the new, the new man, the new humanity put in us through faith is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator, Right? So, you have to at the same time believe that A, God does all the work, and B, you are a necessary participant and you have work to do. You see, you see, you see the tension there? So you end up participating and cooperating as the condition of working with what God is doing, how he's remaking the new humanity that we've put on in faith and that's based in Christ who is our life, right? We got that? Okay. It's really exciting so far. Okay. So you and I then have to participate in the taking off of the old nature and the putting on of the new one and of living like we've taken off the old one and put on the new one. And I'm going to talk about the putting on process next week. Um, Today, I want to focus on the taking off process. And now, listen, you got to hang with me for a minute here because I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you what Scripture teaches we're supposed to do, and it's going to sound too simple, okay? It's going to be a problem. I'm going to say what it is, and you're going to say, that's, that's simplistic. That's not nearly nuanced enough. Listen, we can sit here and nuance what I'm going to say till the cows come home. And you know I would. But, <laughs> but what, it, what it teaches is very simple and direct. Um, that is that our transformation, which the Bible calls sanctification or being made sacred, in the gospel, has to be driven by—I got this picture from somewhere—driven by the gospel. We want a gospel-driven sanctification. We want it driven by Jesus. Now, how do you do that? And there is a dynamic—there's there's only one evangelical or gospel-centered dynamic. The dynamic is either present or it's not present. If it's present, it will create spiritual growth. It will create supernatural maturity. It will do that. And if it is not present, it will— Supernatural growth and maturity will not happen. And there are many counterfeits, but there is only one real, gospel-centered, effective, Holy Spirit-filled, God-ordained dynamic of human transformation. Let me tell you what it is. Okay. Um, It's just two—it's two parts. It's repentance— and faith. That's it. It's repentance and faith. 
That's what it is. That's the dynamic. Um, it is, it is to, to it, repentance is just, it's to admit we're wrong. It's to change our mind and to turn around. And here, you, you can define it for our purposes in this series as identifying and removing idols from the heart. And then the putting on is faith, right? And that is, listen, if we just broke down idol, what did we do? We just retracted trust from something, didn't we? If you break an idol, I was trusting in that thing to be my provider. I just retracted that trust. Now, what's going to be the new object of this trust? Because if it's not put in something that's worth it, it's going to be put in something else because we are trusting creatures. We are dependent creatures. We will put our trust in some provider. And so when I take back that trust from the idol, I have to make a deposit somewhere, right? And so that's what faith. I take back the trust. I repent of putting my trust in that thing. And then I need to put it in the gospel, in Jesus. I need to trust the one who is seated at the right hand of God, the Savior who has accomplished my salvation. I need to trust him to provide for the thing I was trusting in, that idol to provide for me and to define in me. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and what we need to recognize, therefore, is that gospel growth— is almost never framed in relationship to effort. Because if a temptation comes down to a struggle of effort, you have probably already lost. You've probably already lost. Because if the temptation is strong, that means you love the thing and you have no motivation to resist it. Temptation to, and you say, well, well, yeah, but you know, you know, there's lust and there's the sins of the, the body. There's, yeah, but the, the drives of the body get out of control when our affections get out of control, when our, the object of our loves that we mentally set get out of control. So if our bodily urges are out of control, it's probably because we love things that those bodily urges can connect with. And so if you get to the point where you're like, oh, there's all this temptation, but I'm going to resist it. You're, no, you're not. You're not going to resist it if it comes down to moral effort. And that's one of the reasons why the gospel is almost never framed in terms of how hard you try to be good. Almost never. And that's not to say that there is an effort involved in following Jesus. It's just to say that's not where we put our effort. Because the, the line's already broken by the time you get to that point. The gospel is framed in Scripture in relationship to a choice. It's always a choice, right? So God brings the people out of, e out of Egypt, and they're in the desert, and he says, Moses, go talk to the people, and you ask them if they want to be my people. And so Moses goes, okay. And he goes and he asks the people, and the people say, yes, we want, we want God to be our God. And so, okay. And so God says, all right, so here's— Here's the, here are the commandments, right? And then you get to the end. Moses dies. Joshua's leading his people. He gets towards the end of his life, and he says to them, he says, look. He says, look. We're in Canaan now. There's all these pagan people around us. They do all kinds of different stuff. And you're going to have to make a decision today whether following Yahweh— the one who gave us this law and saved us out of Egypt and promised us the future, you're going to have to decide if this is going to be a generational faith or if this is going to die with us. That we had a good run. And I'll just tell you, for us, for my family, we're going to follow, we're going to follow God. Right? And that's the—some of you have that needle pointed in your house, right? In my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But what does it say just before that? He turns and he says, you need to choose— because your, your life cannot be pointed. It cannot get any momentum and direction without a choice. And that's one of the reasons why we can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And I can give you more pointers and tell you more things about the Bible and more things about Jesus. Blah, blah, blah. And we can, we can just go on for, for on and on and on until the cheese makes itself. But let me just tell you, none of this goes anywhere without choices. Without Getting to the point where you say, no, you know what? That is wrong. I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to turn away. I'm going to repent. And I'm going to put my trust over here. I'm going to have faith. 
And if, if you've been coming to church and you're like, listen, I've been preaching, I've been listening, you preach for a while, but nothing's, I mean, nothing's changed. Right. right, that's what I'm saying. And it won't. It won't change until there's a choice. Because the Bible does not lay it out in terms of gathering more knowledge or in terms of expending more effort. It lays out the fundamental premise as a premise of a choice. Are you going to choose the Savior or are you going to choose the idol in this thing? That's it. And you can never get enough power over the temptation and you can never ultimately kill that anxiety until you take the first step of making a choice about who you are going to trust in to provide for you and define you. Is it going to be the Savior or is it going to be the idol? So what that means is, is that we are always, every action we take, every action we take is always deciding between trusting in two visions of reality. Okay? Two visions of reality. And every action, everything we do, we're choosing one of those two visions of reality. We are either choosing one in which I, in which I say to myself, I say, let's look, I am, cru- I am already crucified and risen with Christ. And he is in me and I am in him forever. Right? Or I am choosing one in which I look at that particular idol need. I, I want to be defined in that way and I want to be provided for in that way. And I say, I'm my own kingdom, and I'm going to provide for myself, and I'm going to define myself. And all of our temptations and our anxieties and our sins and all that is ultimately going to get tracked back to a choice about the vision of reality we we ascribe to. And so the process of sanctification ends up looking something like this. You, You have to see it first. You have to see that there's two kingdoms. You have to see what that kingdom is. You have to see what that kingdom is. You've got to see your idol for what it is. You've got to see your sin for what it is on one side. Then you've got to see the new self Christ is putting you for what it is. And you need to see the Savior for who he is. And then you've got to make a choice. And then you've got to actually do what the choice dictates. And then You've got, to, you've got to gain the appetite for enjoying the new kind of providing. Right? You've you got, you got to develop a new taste for it. You've got to enjoy the new provision. Otherwise, what's going to happen? You're going to look back over there and you say, Oh, don't you remember what we used to eat in Egypt? Remember that? That's, they actually said that. Remember that when the children of Israel came out? They were like, You know, when we were in Egypt, we had all this other food. Oh, that's— it's a great picture. If we, don't, if we don't learn to see and savor and enjoy what we've turned to, you don't seal the process. It'll always slide back. And once you savor and enjoy the Savior in providing for that thing, guess what happens? You see more. Another idol comes up, and Jesus confronts it, and he says, I provide for that. And, but you just tasted that Jesus can provide for this. And you go, wait a second. Maybe Jesus does provide for that. Maybe I should try that. Maybe I should try to see that for what it really is. And see the old self in it for what it really is. And the new self for how it's in conflict with that. And how the Savior is, is different and in conflict with that. And maybe I need to make a choice. And maybe I need to do something about that choice. And maybe I need to learn how to see and enjoy and savor how Christ provides in that. You see how that works? If that process is happening, it has to be a psychologically active process. You have to do it, and you have to know you're doing it. If you don't know, do it, and you don't know you're doing it, you're not doing it. And it is a condition of spiritual growth. The only other option God has if you're not in that process is what? Pain. It's the only other option he's got. is to blow up your relationship with your idol. Right? Like it says in Hosea, he says, I'm going to block their way with thorns. I'm going to, I'm going to do stuff to them because I'm their husband. I'm going, to, I'm, going to do, I'm going to mess with that. Right? Okay. Now, listen, I, I recognize that we don't really like 
just talk negatively. Okay, I realize that. I've, I, I, when I was in Lynn Haven, I re, I, we read a lot of church growth stuff, studies there, which were really helpful. And one of the things that always would come through is, listen, if you're a pastor, don't talk about negative stuff. People want to hear about that. They want to hear about positive stuff. They want to hear about encouraging stuff. They, want, they don't want to hear about— don't, so don't talk about politics and don't talk about— you know, and it's very easy to assume that means also don't talk about sin, right? It's very— because you, know, you, be, you can be kind of—right? You can be too dark, right? Am I too, am I too dark? I'm just kidding. I'm, probably am, but it's, it doesn't matter. The new Batman movie's coming out. Um, it, for okay, for example, I have a garden, okay? It, it does not do any good to do all the positive sides of gardening and none of the negative. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I can, I can till the soil, and I can put in the stuff, and I can plant the seeds, and I can water it, and I will not have anything in, in my particular neck of the woods. I will not have anything come harvest time. Nothing. Because the little, the little vine borer grubs are going to come and kill my squash, and the rabbits are going to come and eat everything, and, and then— you know, then the Japanese beetles are going to eat my cherry tree and my apple tree, and there will be nothing left. Even though, and I can go out there every day and water and do all the positive things. But if I don't do the negative work of farming, of tending, it is not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And that doesn't even include pruning, which is maybe the most negative because it's something I love that I'm cutting. But it has to be done. Or my tomato plants will take everything over and not produce anything. The negative work has to be done and the positive work has to be done. We need to see them as a true union and part of real life. That's why you can't just encourage your child into adulthood. You have to nurture your child and discipline your child. If you do too much of either one, it's going to be bad. Right? It's going to be bad. And, and here, here's, here's, what, here's what, one last thing on that. If you are sitting out there and you're thinking, you know what, Nick? You, just, you talk so much about the flesh and the sinful nature and human depravity and blah, 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 blah. And, and here's the problem. I just don't really, I just don't really feel that conflict. I mean, you sound like a very conflicted person. And your church must be full of all these conflicted people. But I'm just not very conflicted. I mean, I just— feel pretty good. You're kind of, kind of a buzzkill on Sunday morning, you know? And, um, you know, if we, we beat Penn State last night, that's good, you know? Um, here's the problem. The only way, the, the only way the flesh can totally dominate you is if you don't know it's there if you're not sensible to the struggle. If, if, if you—the good news is, is that if you can—if you feel sin in your life, if you're just like, look, <laughs> um, relatively speaking, I'm a decent feller, but if you knew what was in here, you would not be okay with it. You know, you would just would not want to come over my— you know, like, if you feel that way, listen, that's good. That's a, that's a great thing because, you see, if that depresses you, if you're like, I'm so bad, I do not look like Jesus. This is awful. Listen, if that depresses you, here's the good news. Um, it just means you don't believe the gospel yet. Totally. Because you're, you're still legitimizing your worth in how good you are. Rather than the fact that the Savior loves you. Right? And so if you believe the gospel, you can look at that sin and you can be like, that's pretty bad, but Jesus thinks I'm great. Woo! I mean, you just, you could just get, you could get free of that. But if you know it's there, it cannot dominate you. What's the most important part of a battle? Waking up. Right? Right? I mean, if everybody, if you're all sleeping, you got some watch people out there and, a, and, a, and, and an attack is coming, the most important part is when the guy who's watching goes, hey, wake up! Everybody get up! And you go, what's happening? Where's my gun? And you wake up. Because if that doesn't happen, you're not going to make it. Right? Same thing in a battle. If you can't figure out where your enemy is, isn't, you're, in, you're in trouble. Why are we still in Afghanistan and Iraq? 
if everybody who hated our military just went out to a battlefield and lined up in rows and we did the same thing and there was like a battle to end the conflict. We, people be home this afternoon. But that's not going to happen, is it? Because you can't, can't find them. Right? And that's the way, listen, that's what the flesh is. So if you, if you feel, if you're sensible of the conflict of the flesh, that is good news. Because it doesn't have to emotionally cripple you because Jesus is the friend of sinners. He is the physician of the sick. Right? He is the lover of humanity. He is the Savior. And so, and he draws close to those Scripture says, who are penitent or who are repentant, who see and are sensible of the flesh and of indwelling sin and of idolatry and wish to be free of it. Jesus draws close to people like that. He pours his spirit out on people like that. He brings strong people around folks like that. He, he cares for and shepherds those sheep. It's good. It's a good thing. But if you're unsensible of it, you'll be totally dominated by it. All right. Three steps to seeing idolatry in the flesh. And I'm just going to call this little bit that you, here's what, you have to learn to read your gauges. Okay? You have to learn to read your gauges. Um, there are signals that idolatry is present and the flesh is working. There are signals. And if you know those signals, you can stop them before it gets out of control. Right? Why do people have alarms? Right? So the minute somebody breaks in, they know. Right? The minute somebody breaks in, they know. My dog barks at people before they park in my driveway. And I know somebody's coming before they can get out of their car. And so I can look and see who it is and so another person wants me to sign something, and I can, I can be ready, you know? And that, that's all there is to it. And so that's what—see, if you don't do that, if you just—you're kind of sleeping in your little spiritual bedroom, then you, you know somebody's in your house when somebody is going through your, you know, your jewelry desk in your bedroom. That's when you—oh my goodness, there's somebody here! So if, if, you rec if you can learn to know the signs and get after them, you can keep that from getting momentum— and you can push things back, and you can be in a much more defensible position in applying the gospel to all these kinds of things. You see what I'm saying? Okay, so here are three things relatively quickly. The first is um, we need to read our gauges. So what do we mean by that? Um, the areas of sin, temptation, and anxiety hold the main gauges of flesh and idolatry. They are the main signals. And so therefore— um, God's commandments and the emotional peace found in Christ become the main gauges for knowing when idolatry is active because the flesh is active. You see what I'm saying? Okay, now, this is a gauge. It's a gauge. Look at that. Okay, so I want you, I'm giving you something. You can, you can be reminded of this every time you get in your car, right? Okay? Your life has a dashboard. And Every gauge has at least two parts if they're not digital. And that is that there's some kind of metric, right? So zero to 100 on this oil pressure gauge, right? And there's a needle. There's the metric and there's the needle. And they're both important. Because without the metric, the needle doesn't mean anything. Where is it supposed to be? I have no idea, right? Um, but without the needle, the metric doesn't mean anything because you don't know where you are. And so you need to be sensible of both of them. Now, the metric numbers you can think of as God's commandments and promises. They, ref they give a baseline and they reflect a world in which God is God. Okay? And so, for example, you can think of God's commandments. God's commandments and promises are pointed at us so that we would live in such a way as though God is God. So that's a right vision of the world then. If so remember, Scripture says you don't have to live by the law if you live by the Spirit. Why? Because if the Spirit has come and given you a Christ-centered focus of reality, you're going to just do all the commands. You don't have to even—you don't even have to know most of them. You'll just naturally do them because that's what people do in a God-centered reality, right? Therefore, 
If you don't, the commandments can help you by saying, hey, that, that's, not, that's, not living in, that's not living in a God-centered reality. And therefore, not only sin when we actually break a commandment, but even temptation then is a signal of the flesh and of idolatry because temptation is wanting to break a commandment, which means wanting a world in which God isn't God, but in which we are providing for ourselves and defining ourselves. Does that make sense? So you don't have to wait till you sin. You can read the gauge when the temptation is there. I want to punch my wife. Right? Boop, boop. They're already at 75. Just read it then. Okay? Read it then. And then you can say, why? Right? You can move on from there. Um, that, so, I mean, just think about the Ten Commandments. What, okay, the Ten Commandments. Those are boring, aren't they? Oh, okay. But what do the Ten Commandments reflect? They reflect a world in which God is God, right? Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Don't make an idol. That's a world in which the image and name of God are what they're supposed to be, right? Both in, in sight and in word, right? The Sabbath laws, it's a world in which there's a right rhythm of work and play, in which people don't abuse each other in that way, right? It's a place in which right authority is respected because fathers and mothers are honored, right? And you can just go right down through the line, right? Don't commit adultery. What does that mean? It means it would be a world in which love complementarity, creation of life, and mutual care is held sacred because marriage is held sacred because adultery isn't committed. Right? Personal property is honored. You shall not steal. Justice rules. You can't lie or give false testimony about others. And contentment and thankfulness bring peace because we're not coveting. What's the last commandment? Don't covet your neighbor's wife or stuff or anything. Anything that belongs to your neighbor. Right? Why? Because a world in which God is God what are people like? Well, they're full of contentment. They're full of thankfulness. They don't need to covet things. It's a world in which God is God. So you can, you can look at the commandments of the Bible and say, well, those are, there's so many of them. Well, yeah, but everyone is a gauge. Everyone's a gauge. Every one of them can tell us if what we really want is a God-focused vision of reality or a self or idol-focused vision of reality. And when you then sense temptation, or when you then watch yourself sin, or when you feel all kinds of anxieties rising up inside of you, it is the needle going off and saying, there is something wrong here. Because I am not feeling like God is the center of, of reality, and I am not acting like, and I am not wanting like God is the center of reality. I am wanting and feeling and acting as though something else is. And if you will learn to read your gauges all over your life, you will know immediately when the flesh is active and when idolatry is growing. And the great thing about that is you don't have to wait for them to make an encampment and dig in and get all. Because listen, fighting the flesh is hardest at first, but then it can be diminished considerably. And, and those gains maintained so that you don't have to be at the mercy of the, of the kinds of power of temptation and sin and anxiety that we often feel right now. Now, I should say this before, before I move on, is that for some of us, we're going to need a lot more help than others because our gauges are broken, particularly our emotional gauges. There are just some of us that, like, we're going to be anxious. We're going to have certain feelings, and we're broken in a number of different ways. And sin has gotten so into certain areas— that it's not, not just taking control of the thing, but it's broken the gauge itself. And in those cases, we're going to have to realize, we're going to have to look for evidence that our gauge is broken, and we're going to have to pull people into our lives that can help us. Does that, does that make sense? Because it'd be very easy for you to say, does that mean anytime I feel anything other than echoing, still-watered peace, that I'm just a, a crazy idolater? Well, in some ways, but in other ways, you need to recognize that there may be some thing— turned around. And so therefore, having other people that you really trust that you can go to is really helpful. Okay? There's a whole lot more on that. We're just going to go by. Um, the second is um, naming the codes. Um, one of the things to recognize about the, a gauge is 
that it doesn't do all the work for you, does it? Like if your car's overheating, it doesn't really tell you why your car's overheating. It just tells you your car's overheating, right? If it, the, the only gauge that tells you exactly what's going on is really your, your gas gauge, <laughs> right? Or I suppose your RPMs if your car's just off. But, but most gauges are not designed to tell you exactly what's wrong. They just are telling you something that's happening that if something's going wrong, it means there's something wrong. And if it's working, then you go, oh, something's wrong. Well, then what you have to do is you need to have another mechanism to find out what's wrong. And so— um, what most people use now are these, these computers that you can now plug in to the car and it'll tell you what's wrong with it, right? And so it'll, it'll give a little code and you go, oh, that's blah, blah, blah. That is, that is a spiritual process that needs to be added to breeding your gauges. You have to be able to question, you have to question your sin, temptation, and anxieties in such a way as you figure out what the heck is going on. Because otherwise, you'll just try to not do whatever it is, or you'll just try to feel better, and that doesn't work. You'll just get tired out, and you'll be sort of disenfranchised and frustrated and so on. So there's two things we need to do. One is we need to question anxiety, temptation, and sin. That is, you need to ask yourself, okay, I'm tempted to do this. I just did this. Um, I'm anxious about this. What drives me that that would be the case? right? What, um, what am I really afraid of? If, if I'm tempted to do this, and I shouldn't, I know I shouldn't do it based on God's commandment, but I really want to do it. I am afraid that if I don't do this, I'm going to miss out on something. That this will provide something for me that Jesus will not provide for me as well or better. And therefore, I am, I'm drawn to it. Now, what, what, drives me that I have to have this? And what am I afraid of missing out on? Or you, you can say this, what is, what is my heart's functional trust here? You say whatever you want about your, your religion. Oh, I trust in Jesus. Sure you do. What do you act like you trust? What is the functional trust of your heart? What do you really trust? What, what has your heart's loyalty what has your hearts—what are you preoccupied with? What do you spend your time thinking about? And why are you thinking about that? What is, what is your heart devoted to? And what does your heart delight in naturally? And if you begin to ask those questions and develop questions like that to ask yourself, you can figure out what's going on. Here, but here's the problem. Here's the problem with that. Um— Sin will, will hide itself at the last minute. You're, you're right there, and, and you'll go, and, and still be like, that's close enough. That you got it. And, but you have, you have to go another step or two. You'll be like, oh, that's really what's going on. No, what's really going on is actually deeper than that. And here's why we don't, here's why we don't go deeper than that. And listen to me now. Here's why we don't go deeper than that. Because what's really going on is embarrassingly shallow. That's why. The reason we don't get all the way down to the bottom of that idolatry is the reason why I'm an idolater is for a very shallow and embarrassing reason. I'm just insecure. <laughs> I'm just—I just want comfort. I, and I'll just do anything. I, I'll, be, I'll be anything just to you know, feel like I'm doing fine. Or I just, I just need approval. Right? I mean, we think—we we are a society of self-made people. We look down on people. People who—people who, people who need others people's approval, or people who need to flatter people. I mean, people who can't handle themselves, people who need approval, who need comfort, who aren't tough. We look at those people like, what's wrong with you? Right? But here's the problem. We're not near as sophisticated as we think we are. What's sophisticated about us is our covering for our simple, embarrassing sin. And so the problem is, we don't really want to find out what's at the bottom because what's at the bottom is so depressing. It is depressing to say, why am I feeling this way? And to get back to, I'm just afraid of being a failure and I'm horrifyingly insecure. Nobody wants that answer. We don't want that, we don't want that answer. And so sin will just go, You'll get, you'll get two steps above that to, I'm just working really hard and I don't think I'm getting out of it what I'm putting in. That's what's really under this. And you'll stop there. And you'll go, that's what it is. I'm just frustrated. 
No, it's not. No, it's not. The reason that frustrates you is for this reason and this reason. And if you don't figure out what it is, you won't get down to the deepest human need that the idol is satisfying. And so you can't break the idol because you can't find it. And then the second part of unmasking its true nature is this, is, um, is that you need to call it what it is. Don't, don't say, don't say, you know, it's just, it's just hard for me to trust. Say, I'm eat up with unforgiveness and bitterness. You just, you have, you have to call it what it is. Don't say, you know, that concerns me a little bit. Say, I'm just full of anxiety. I don't trust God. I just don't trust God at all. I don't trust um, that he's going to fulfill my expectations. You, d- don't say, you know what? I'm a little particular. No, say, I'm so selfish that I just don't mind putting out others considerably in order to get just exactly what I want. Or, uh, or I'm not angry. I'm just indignant. All right. Okay. But you also might be being a jerk and because you're angry. You're an angry person. And you go, well, I've got really good reason for all the things I'm angry about, even though there's many of them. Well, maybe, but you're angry. What's going on? Call it what it is. Right? Or I'm not greedy. I'm careful. Well, maybe you're careful, but maybe you're greedy. And if you're greedy, you better figure it out and you better call it what it is, right? Otherwise, all, otherwise what's going to happen is all of our idols are going to have cute little pet names. Cute little pet names. I don't gossip. I just share prayer requests, you know? It's, right? You know? I'm not lazy. I'm contemplative. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not arrogant. I'm direct. I'm not, Whatever. That all, all of you, all of our—listen. All of your idols, all of our idols have pet names. We have little pet names for all of them, and, we're pr- and so therefore we get to be proud of them. <laughs> instead, instead of broken over them, which brings us to the very last bit, which I'll cover in 30 seconds, which is you've got to do the right work. You've got to do the right work. Because if you don't do the right work, then you won't get a good result. You'll get a terrible result. Because most of what passes for repentance is self-pity. Most of what passes for repentance is self-pity. And self-pity gets you nowhere. Because, and this is a passage I would direct you to in 2 Corinthians, godly sorrow or real repentance will lead to salvation and not regret. But worldly sorrow is going to bring death. It's going to destroy you because self-pity really is I've angered, I've angered and I've awoken the wrath of God and I'm going something, to, something's going to happen to me. I'm going to have problems and issues are going to come from what I've done. But what self-pity really does is it focuses you more on you. I shouldn't have done that. There's going to be fallout for that. I'm not going to get that problem. Whatever, but or God's not going to bless me. Or, but it's, it's really just, it's really just turning it in on you. You're feeling bad for you. That's, that's not repentance, and that's not—that's not, not, not real sorrow, is it? And what that does is it commits you more to yourself, and ultimately it commits you more to your idol. Your loves don't change. You see, what, repentance happens when you don't look to the law and figure out what God's going to do. It's when you look to the cross and you see what you did to the glory, truth, beauty, and goodness of God. You, you look to the cross and you see— you see the beauty that you defaced in front of you. You see the truth that you slandered and lied about. You, you see the goodness that you put aside for evil. You see that and you, you sense that you are lost. That there's something about you that goes away. There, it, it, that you, you say, whatever happens to me, I did that. And when your commitment to God and his glory and his truthfulness and love and becomes the center and, you, and you're, you're fixed on that, there's a, there's a self-forgetfulness that comes. And what can happen is you actually begin to hate your idol and let go of the flesh because you just don't care about what happens to you anymore because you see who God is, what he's done, what he loves, what he cares about, and, and you're willing to just be erased. And that is the moment at which faith happens and real repentance happens and real freedom begins to come and you begin to 
take your faith away from those idols and give it wholeheartedly to Jesus and to see how he provides and enjoy how he provides. And then you see, and then you choose, and then you turn, and then you enjoy, and you go, and you go, and you go, and you go, and you go. And repentance and faith happens. And freedom comes with it. And anxiety is lessened. And anger is diminished. And hope revives. And Jesus is seen as imminently real. And a vision of a world in which God is God becomes yours. And it will change you. And the flesh will start to die and some idols will begin to break and the old self will come off. And you won't be exhausted and defeated. And even when you still fail, you won't see it as something you work out of. You see it as something you would turn back to Christ for and see that choice between the idol and the Lord and say, no, I have to choose this and why. You'll see your sin more than you ever did, and you'll be happier than you've ever been. Because the idols will be broken down, and the fresh will be killed through the Savior, through the gospel, through the shedding of the old self, and the putting on of the new. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> would you help us to stop trying to either cover up our flesh or to survive in it. And would you help us to see you for what you are and to see our idolatry for what it is and to gladly throw off the old self and to gladly break down the idol and to retract our trust from other providers and other definers and to give it to you and to give it to you gladly and have an ever-growing ability to see your worth and to enjoy your kind of provision. Help us to be a people who read these gauges well, who learn something from sin, temptation, and anxiety, and who see that as a means to find out what's going on and turn to you, Father. Let there be repentance and faith among us and pour out the power of your Holy Spirit to accomplish it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand for the benediction? <clears throat>